someone were to ask us, what must I do to be saved? We would know how to respond to them. We would turn to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, and we'd read that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And we turn them back to chapter 2 and verse 38, and we read to them that Peter said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we'd be able to tell them from these passages that a person has to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They've got to confess that faith, that they've got to repent of their sins, and that they've got to be baptized for the remission of their sins. And then we take that person to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, and we'd read to them that it says that yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." We would know to take people to these verses and teach them how to become Christians. But there's another question that we need to ask today. It's a question that, in fact, I have heard people ask, even if they don't realize it. This question is, how good must I be to be saved without obeying the gospel? There are two people in, in particular that need to ask and answer this question. First of all, there are those people with whom I have studied and often showing them these verses in the Scripture and they've seen these things like Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. And they've convinced themselves and said to me and perhaps even said to you, well, look at all the good things I've done. How could God condemn me over such a little thing as baptism? The person needs to ask, well, how good must I be to be saved without obeying the gospel? The second person that needs to ask and answer this question are actually among our brethren. Christians who I've actually heard say these kind of things need to ask this question, how good must a person be to be saved without obeying the gospel? As they look at family members and friends who have the same Bible that we have, that read all the same verses that we read, it's all in there, and yet they haven't obeyed these verses. However, they're sincere, they're religious, they're devoted to their form of religion. And I've even heard Christians say, especially when they're dealing with family members, well, come on, surely God would not condemn someone over so little a thing as not being baptized for the remission of their sins. We need to ask this question, how good must I be? to be saved without obeying Christ's gospel. As we consider this question, there are some ancillary questions that we need to ask for that, and that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at several questions to help us answer the big question. How good have any of us really been? Here's the problem. When we ask this question about how good must I be to be saved without obeying the gospel, when we look at folks and talk about how good they are and how devoted they are, we need to remember that we're actually looking through human eyes and with human understanding. And God does not look at these things the same way we do. Do you remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As the, he 
excuse me, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God does not think as we think when it comes to these questions. We look at people and we see folks as good or bad based on how we compare to one another. But that's not what God sees. What does God see? Look in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, we find out how God sees every single one of us. How He sees me, how He sees you, how He sees everybody that's out there. In Romans chapter 3 it says, in verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When God looks down at this earth, certainly we may see a spectrum of goodness and badness. Some people seem to be worse than others, but when God looks down, He sees that everyone has fallen short of His glory. None of us have been good. Not even one. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What does Paul say about everyone, including himself? We were all following after the devil and his will. We were all following after our own lusts and our own desires. All of us were dead in trespasses and sins. How good have we been? We haven't been that good. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And so we ask another question. Well, how many good works will pay for those past sins? Now, a lot of us have recognized how sinful we've been. And a lot of us have decided that we're going to repent and we're going to change and we want to be more like God. And a lot of us have decided we need to do something with our lives in order to serve the Lord. And so we might ask ourselves this question. How many good works does it take to pay for our past sins? How good must I be to cover that up? Look in Luke 17. In Luke 17... Beginning at verse 7, we find the answer to this question. In Luke 17 and verse 7, Jesus says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too... 
when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. How many good works pay for our past sins? Was it two for one? A thousand good works paid for one sin? No. There are no amount of good works that we can do to pay for any of our sins. It's great that we've decided we want to start serving God and we want to start doing things His way. But once we start doing that, all we are doing is what we should have been doing anyway. And if we should have been doing it all the way along, there's no way that starting to do it now will pay for what we didn't do before. And there are no amount of good works that we can do from here on out that can pay for even one sin that we've committed in the past, let alone the myriad of sins that we've committed and continue to commit. Even if from this day forward, I never committed another sin, I would only be doing what I should have done from the beginning. And so as I turn to God, all I can say is, I am an unworthy servant. Nothing I do makes me worth salvation. Which actually leads us to another question that we might consider, and that question is, at what point does God owe us salvation? At what point of obedience in all that we've done does God say, now here's a person that deserves to be saved? Look in Ephesians chapter 2 again. We read verses 1 through 3 where we learned how despicable we've been. Notice how Paul follows that in Ephesians 2 beginning at verse 4. He says, But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. At what point does God ever owe anyone salvation? God never owes anyone salvation. There's not a single person in this room, no matter how good we may be, no matter how long you've been going to church, no matter how much money you give in the collection, no matter how dogmatic you are about Christ's doctrine and His truth, no matter what we have done, God never owes us salvation. We are but unworthy slaves, and if we are going to be saved, it's going to be because God in His mercy and His grace grants salvation to those who do not deserve it. He does not owe us. We can make no demand based on anything that we have done. Look in Romans chapter 9 and verse 15. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 15. Paul quotes where God spoke to Moses saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Salvation is by mercy. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is by God's compassion on those who do not deserve it. Who gets it? God says, I get to choose. I'll have mercy on the ones I want to have mercy. I'll have grace for those whom I want to give grace. I'll have compassion 
on those to whom I want to have compassion. And we don't get to tell God who gets His grace. We don't get to tell God who receives His mercy. We don't get to tell God and demand who receives compassion. God makes that choice. And so we ask. Who gets it? Who receives the grace? Who receives the mercy? Where is salvation to be found? Look in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 10. The council is asking Peter and John how they healed this lame man, by what power, by what authority. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Where is salvation to be found? In Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus alone. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. You can't be saved by my name. I can't be saved by my name. There's no list of good works that I can come up with and say as long as I devote myself to that, I've saved myself. There is no list of works that you can come up with and say that as long as I do this, I've saved myself. We can't be saved in our own name. We can't be saved in the name of any preacher or pastor or pope. There is no teaching to which we can devote ourselves coming from any of the sons of men to which we can say, I've done this and therefore I must be saved. We cannot be saved in the name of any church, denomination, or creed. There is no group of men that have formed themselves together and written anything that I can devote myself to and find salvation in that. There is salvation in no other name under heaven but in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's it. We've got to be in Jesus if we want to be saved. And so, how do I get there? Look in Romans 6. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3. In Romans 6 and verse 3. Listen to what it says about getting into Jesus. Having salvation in Him. In Romans 6 and verse 3, Paul wrote, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Look in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul again writes, and he says in Colossians 2 and verse 9, For in Him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head of all rule and authority. Where? In Him we are made complete. Verse 11. And in Him we are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When did that happen? Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. When did this occur? In baptism. That's when we got in Him, it says. One more passage, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. What do we learn here? I want to be in Christ. How do I do that? Through faith and baptism. By believing God and submitting to Him in obedience. Buried with Him in baptism. Raised through faith. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus said in Mark 16, 16? He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. See, it all fits together. If I want to be in Christ, I have to obey His gospel. I have to do what He says and submit to Him in faithful, obedient baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. And then I am in Christ. And not before so we've got to ask another question that some will certainly ask. Well, then isn't baptism a work that earns our salvation? Is obeying the gospel a good work that now causes us deserve, to deserve to be saved? Absolutely not. I am really amazed when I consider the great debate that wages around baptism that anyone would ever even remotely suggest that baptism is a, such a great work that now I've owed salvation because I've done it. In fact, when you consider the way it's talked about, we see how ridiculous that is. As we're studying with somebody, what will they say? They'll say, I just can't believe that God would condemn someone to hell over something so small as baptism. You ever heard anything say something like that? Something so small, we realize how small baptism is, don't we? It's not like God asks us to climb to the top of Mount Everest once a year and, and spend a month fasting up there in prayer and devotion to Him. It's not like He asks us to do some great, amazing thing. Who on earth would imagine that because somebody dunked them under the water and raised them up, that this person has now done some great and mighty work that they believe has earned them salvation. Who would ever think such a silly and ridiculous thing? Not me. Baptism is not some great work by which we are owed salvation. What is it then? Look in Acts 22 and verse 16. Acts 22 and verse 16. Saul, blinded on the road to Damascus, was told, Go into the city, and Ananias will come to you and tell you what you need to do. And later, as he was recounting what Ananias said to him, in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, he said that Ananias said to him, Why do you delay? 
What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. What was his baptism? It was the means by which Saul called on the name of Jesus Christ. Look in 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Peter writes regarding baptism in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves us. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. What is baptism? It is an appeal to God. That's it. That's all it is. It is not some work by which we earn salvation. It is something that we do in order to call on the name of the Lord, in order to appeal to Him to bring us salvation. All we are doing when we do that is exactly what we see from the prodigal son in Luke 15. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Luke 15 and verse 17, he says, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. We know the story. He went back to his father and he said this to him. And what did his father do? His father brought him back into the family. Did that son earn his way back into the family? Oh, no. That son knew exactly where he stood. He knew he didn't deserve to be the son. But he made him a king what would have happened to that prodigal son if he had never gotten up and made the appeal? He would have stayed out with the pigs, wouldn't he? But he made an appeal. He didn't earn his way back into the family, and we cannot. Baptism is an appeal to God for His mercy. And that's all it is. But it's an appeal that we must make if we want to receive His mercy. And we cannot be good enough to be saved without making this appeal in His way. We can't be saved in our own way. So before we close the study, we do need to ask one more question that some might ask. If that's the case, if salvation is holy by grace, if salvation, I can't earn it, there's nothing I can do, all I can do is appeal to God that He'll give me this mercy. And I'll appeal through baptism, of course, but I can't save myself. So then, can, once I'm in Christ, I've been baptized, can I just keep on sinning and expect salvation? Since I can't be good enough to earn it, since it's all by grace and it's just me making an appeal, can I go ahead and just keep sinning? Look at what Paul said in Romans 6. It may seem to us in some type of human logic that because salvation is by grace and all we can do is appeal to God for His grace and appeal to Him in His way, but after that, we just have no more responsibility and there's nothing that we can do. Notice what he said in Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And in Romans chapter 6 beginning at verse 12, Paul continued this vein of thought as he said, Therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. 
And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you're not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace? Nay, it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When we are freed from sin by entering Christ, we became slaves of righteousness. Our duty now, excuse me, our duty now is to serve God in righteousness to obey Him and not to obey the lust of the flesh that we've left and said we've abandoned by coming into Christ. Can we just go ahead and keep on sinning? Absolutely not. We've got to obey Him. And if we transgress on the mercy of Christ thinking that because it's about mercy and grace I can do whatever I want, what we learn from this is that in fact God's mercy will be removed from us. We must continue to serve God and grow in His will. But when we've done that, we've got to remember Luke seventeen ten. I'm still an unworthy slave. I've not earned anything. I can't earn it. God doesn't owe it to me. It's mercy and it's grace. But I can trust that I am saved, not because of my goodness, but because of the promise of Christ. Remember in Hebrews six eighteen, the great hope that's found there. God cannot lie. The claim that we might be saved without obeying Christ's gospel questions the honesty of Jesus and of His Word. And think about what a shaky ground it places us on. Because if God saves those whom He has promised to condemn... How can we ever be sure that He won't condemn those that He's promised to save? Trust God's Word. You can only be saved by being in Christ. Do not look to others and hope that that they'll be saved and therefore I'm going to get saved the same way they did. Because there's only one way to be saved. And that's Christ's way. That's in Christ. And so the question now to you is, are you in Christ? Please pull out your songbook.